beer and ballet fans, welcome to another week of The Brews News. I am your host, Amber, and I am so excited for this next guest. He has performed and studied in many venues around the world with companies such as the Norwegian National Ballet and DV8. Currently, he's a creator of collaborative and sometimes story-led ballets that reveals so much of what an amazing person he is. I want to welcome to the show Andreas Heisa. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, Amber. I'm very good. It's very nice to be here and talk to you today. I know. I'm just, my heart is so happy that we can make this happen. It's so good. Yeah, <laughs> um, can you tell our audience where you are right now? Because this is pretty great that we can talk like this. Yes, I'm in Germany, in Berlin, and it's 5 p.m. here. <laughs> um, so I am going towards the evening and I know that you're just starting your day over there. <laughs> I'm just starting my day. I was going to tell everybody I'm drinking a nice um, hot black coffee and it's fantastic this morning. <laughs> We're getting ready for our snow here. And we just had a conversation about how it just snowed over there, but it's almost springtime for y'all. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it says that in, in, in a couple of days, we will have like um, 12 to 15 degrees. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, mm -hmm. but it's pretty mild and springy. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Well, I, I'd love to get started on it because um, you have such a, a long and amazing, there's so much story that we have to talk about and so many things we have to talk about. But first, can you just let everybody know, how did you start your dancing journey? Yes, I mean, that uh, in itself is already <laughs> a large question. <laughs> I'll try to make it really short, but I have to say first that my mother was a dancer and my father was an opera singer. So I grew up within the world of theater from the very beginnings in, the, in a very small town. But in Germany, you know, there's an advantage of many different theaters in cities and small cities. So I come from a small city, but there was a theater. And they did everything from ballet to opera to musical, operetta, theater. Uh, so I grew up with that kind of diversity of performing arts. And uh, dancing wasn't always a very clear direction for me. Uh, at least, well, in the beginning, when I was very small, I have no memories of this, but my mother tells me that, you know, I've been, I, I was dancing around in the living room and uh, with my brother even. Um, but then I took a ballet class at the age of seven and I didn't really like it because we had to walk like flowers. And I thought, mm, well, somehow that's not what I want to do. And so many years there was no dancing um, until uh, Germany had their, you know, the wall fell in Berlin mm. and they reunited as one country. And then the company in my hometown changed dramatically. It became more international and, the, the, you know, there were people all of a sudden from France, England, Italy, Spain. And the first ballet that, that they then premiered was Coppelia, classical ballet. And that was actually the first time where I thought, wow, I like this and I really want to do that too. And then slowly, I was 13 by then, you know, I started uh, being interested, started dancing around with my friend in the living room and later in the ballet studio, but always just improvising and trying to copy what we saw on the stage the night before. So I didn't really take a ballet class uh, until I actually went to the audition for the ballet school. <laughs> so it was, I was 16 by then, and it was a bit courageous looking back at that. 
uh, and naive, but <laughs> I got in. And yeah, that was the real beginning of my, of my dancing education and career. I love this thought and this idea that you, you with your friends just improvised and watched and absorbed for so many years, really trying to embody what's happening in front of you visually. And then just being like, you know what, let's just go try and, and trying and look at you now. Like it's taking that risk. Yes. And it was, I mean, in, in a way it, play to my advantage because the school that I attended, which is the University for Dance in Dresden, the Paluka School, they pay a lot of attention in the education to, to the subjects of improvisation, modern dance, and improvisation is sort of essential there. And, and I always liked that part and also helped me further in my career. And when I auditioned there and they realized, okay, this this boy has no idea uh, about the ballet exercises, but he can copy quite well. And then there was an improvisation task and I went for it. And I think that was kind of when they decided to take me into the school because I had, I came with freedom and I just did technical things without even thinking about it and had no fear. And I think they, they saw the potential in that, that I could, uh, you know, develop from there even yeah. though I was 16 and the physicality, you know, there were some problems that, that I brought. Oh, yeah. And I mean, that, that's something that I always love to talk about is that I love people who come into class who have no idea whatsoever what the ballet world is or the technique behind it or anything. Cause they teach me new things, new ways of thinking of, of this, you know, here's this new body that's walking in and this is how it's comprehending what I'm trying to to teach and it's really fun I, I I find that so enjoyable for myself yeah and, and I mean it's a challenge because when you go to a ballet school I mean I came with this sort of freedom but then of course they had to organize all of this body <laughs> you know and then you have to learn this sort of discipline and then you have all these rules all of a sudden and and I think then it's important within these rules to to remain or, or keep that freedom of moving without thinking too much about these rules. But, but that's, mm-hmm. of course, it takes a lot of years. And like, like instruments, if you play an instrument, you do have to do the scales and you do have to learn the technique in order to, you know, to gain that freedom later to, to even improvise on the piano or uh, right. any other instrument. Yeah. And so we, we sort of dive, dove in a little bit towards this, but can you describe your relationship with ballet? And you can say today, like you don't have to say back then because I know you, you've chatted a little bit about it, but maybe how that relationship sort of grown throughout your career. I mean, it's always remained an identity, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, because, yeah, as, as a professional uh, uh, dancer, and you know that, I mean, it's it's a lifestyle. It's like so much of your time, also personal life goes into this uh, and it has to, if you want to achieve certain things. So it is part of, of your being, uh, which sometimes is an advantage and, and some other times it's a disadvantage for life because you're so absorbed in that world. But I, I really see that there is no other way when you want to reach a certain excellency in, in what you do. But, but for me, it's never been a problem because the way I grew up, art was sort of essential to my life. I mean, my identity was created through art. So it's the most natural thing to work all the time, to, to have danced all the time. You know, for me, it was never a burden. 
that I said, oh my God, you know, I have no free time. No, actually this is how I, because a hobby became the profession. And so in a way, I think describing it as my identity is probably the right thing. Although, you know, of course it changes now. I'm not an, an active dancer, but it's still part of my being. It probably will always be. Oh yeah, for sure. I feel like once you're in, you're in. You can't can't escape it. (laughs) And I want to dive into another part of your your studies and and your world a little bit, because it's super exciting to me. All the beer and ballet fans know I'm a musical theater nerd and I love theater. I think it's great. And I love the collaborations that happen between the dance world and theater. But you actually studied acting in New York and Norway and East 15 acting school in London with a concentration in theater direction. So how has this kind of helped or affected your choreographic process now today? As you said before, you kind of moved from dancing to now being a creator. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, several, I mean, all these, these things were like summer intensives, you know, like these sort of intensive programs that you join. And then I had a teacher in Norway for, a longer time, a private acting teacher. Well, it, it kind of derived from, from my interest in, in acting. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say that in, in I had some sort of natural talent for that, but I always wanted to understand it better. Also creating different leading roles, you know, story ballets. So that's when it started. But at the same time, the former director of the Norwegian National Opera, Paul Curran, he has challenged me also in starting to direct a small opera production. And, and also I thought, oh, if I do that, you know, I want to just learn more about theater direction. I want to learn more about acting in general. And it has really, I can just recommend it to all professional dancers out there to do that because, and, and you know, I had to, let's call it sacrifice my summer holiday to, to do these kind of things. But it was so worth it because, you look at things from a different angle. And I mean, in terms of choreography, it just taught me to structure my work differently and and to approach character work differently also as a dancer, because that was when I did that, I was still a very active dancer. And it, it I'm still drawing from the learnings actually from, from all these extra studies, because yeah, it's just kind of taught me to go a little bit away from, from, only thinking in in terms of dance but to enrich your vision and to see oh there are other approaches that I can also use as a dancer mm-hmm. like creating a character you know of course when 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 I talk about classical ballet you know sometimes it can be very dull and there's maybe not much room for uh, interpretation <laughs> but with having said that there is always I think things that you can sort of uh, additional aspects that you can put onto characters or even from from a technical point of view, if you have trouble with the technique, sometimes another thought might help you to fulfill the technicality of Mm -hmm. a certain step. So it's not just focused on, you know, if you're stuck with, with a certain step, then sometimes a different approach might actually help you to succeed mm-hmm. uh, and that kind of opened up this kind of sphere of just enriching the perspectives of how to approach 
my job. And giving those that you work with a brand new idea. I love this thought of if you don't understand a step, it's okay. Maybe you need a new perspective on it. Because a lot of times, especially with our classes, there's so much imagery that ends up happening. Um, we talk about waterfalls or we talk about the the hair, the old hair salons where the, the thing spiraled up to talk about the spiral. It's also very funny and enriching for us as teachers too, to come up with those imagery. Sometimes it's really funny. But, but yeah, I like that because I worked with uh, amateurs as well. And that was actually really some of my favorite experiences because you have to find a different language because they don't respond to the jargon of the ballet. You know? So to make them understand a movement, I would use different images like the, what you just described yet to, for them to understand. And then that translating into a a non or a differently trained body is always very exciting. And, and it's kind of taught me a lot in terms of how can I make people do something with a different kind of language, you know, mm -hmm. and to actually rethink how I want to address movement. And even when doing that, I find myself having to go back to my childhood a little bit. Like, what is something that we all in the room have common and try and find that common denominator? And it's, it's really interesting when you have various levels or like you said, you're working with people who are just walking into the space. But to find that common denominator in this world of ballet that's so large and has a lot of, sometimes a lot of pressure within it. It's kind of nice to just have those fun imageries to go back to your childhood a little bit and say, no, it's okay, y'all. <laughs> this is this is supposed to be fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Actually, my, my first, I mean, my only ballet teacher at school, he always reminded us when we were frustrated that you have to remember that dance is joy of life, you know? Mm -hmm. And and I thought about that many times in my career when, you know, because you do get frustrated. I mean, there are times where nothing works and you, you yeah, are at the end of your sources and <laughs> you need to find different ways. And then it's good to remember these kind of things. Um, and also this sort of freedom of, of improv improvising as a teenager without boundaries and rules so yeah absolutely going back to these kind of Im images or experiences from childhood or being a teenager is very helpful sometimes ballet fans just wanted to pop in and remind you that we have so many fun amazing crazy things happening on our instagram page such as music mondays if you check out our instagram page we have some combinations that you get to learn and you get to choose whatever music you would like for that combination post it on your Instagram page, or feel free to email it to us at beerandballet at gmail.com. Make sure you tag us. And then by Friday, we will choose a winner. And that winner will get a free beer and ballet koozie. I can't wait to see how creative y'all get with these videos. But for now, let's get back to the podcast. And I want to kind of touch base on some of the, so everybody, you need to go on his website and I'll make sure that I post the link within all of the promotion for this podcast, but there's teaser videos of your choreographic works right now. And what I found very fascinating with the most recent work is that you are currently working with live musicians or singers, which I see that now as we're talking about really working within the opera and having family members within the opera. 
But I love this interaction that always seems to happen. It's not just the vocalist is standing on one side of the stage, the piano's on the other and the dancer's in the middle. They're interacting with each other. And I know that getting that process going sometimes is, you know, you have to take a journey within that. So do you mind chatting about that really quickly? Of course. I mean, like for me, like when I told you where I come from, I mean, it's a very natural thing to combine these these art forms because from a very early age for me they just belong together like just looking at parents you know singer dancer so somehow I never questioned that they wouldn't be happening at the same time but of course it's also a matter of how to do it but I have a passion for both so I have also an enormous respect for singers and I uh, when I was in my early 20s I did some singing lessons as well and I I also was singing in the children's choir. So I just, I explored my voice as well as, and then the breath, you know, the technique of that. I, I don't say that I mastered it because it's very difficult, but I have a, a good understanding of what it means to produce this kind of sound. And that combination also, because movement and singing is, ba- or also playing an instrument is based on the breath. So for me, that was always the common ground. And, and when I work with, singers and dancers this is kind of the starting point and then of course you have to have singers that want to do it that's always very important that they are open to this kind of approach and I mean so far of course for my independent projects it's a given that they want to do it but also if I go to work in theaters you know I will make sure that we cast people that that are open to these kind of approaches. It's not really like, you know, that everyone has to do a headstand and sing, you know, <laughs> but but it's more like, how can I organically connect these people? Because it's in the end of the day, it's about communicating together and to finding a way that none of the art forms sacrifice anything. So it's not that the dance part should be less because it needs to match the singing or the disturbing the voice just for the sake of moving. So it's, it's you know, it's I'm still exploring there because there are also, of course, very individual approaches from singers and, and some like to take more risks. You know, normally I would, I would ask the singer if I know the piece of music, I ask them, so where would you move? Where would you like to move less? Where can we move more? So it's from the beginning a very, it's a process together as a team. So I'm not putting something onto them you know, sometimes, of course, you have to, to, to try things to see whether it works or not. But but that you, you know very quickly because, you know, singers are very much in tune with their instrument as well. And then they will tell you, oh, that is not possible or that's possible. Or let's try it and see, you know. Yeah. So and this is what I love. I love this sort of collaborative part of, of bringing these three art forms together. Yeah, I remember in my undergrad and I... I need to contact my instructor because I forget what she called it, but we had to take a music class and we had to watch orchestras play. And you know, with violinists, like for instance, they all move in unison. And she was like, yeah. that, that's a thing. Like that's a real technique that they learn and they ingest. And, and um, it's really beautiful to watch. And then we started comparing it to our movement because before we even saw the, like visually what they were doing, we listened to it and we just moved. And then she turned it on and we were like, oh, we're moving in the same way. So it's, it's really interesting what music does to the body. That is true. And, and I mean, the, the, yeah, the orchestra is a good example because sometimes when you listen or watch a symphony, 
there it's a choreography also the conductor you know it's it's really physical yeah. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> yeah. yeah i'm pretty amazed at what they can do <laughs> yeah yeah me too i mean it's it's fantastic and and there also i have had some some interesting encounters also with um a group of i don't actually know what you call it in english trumpets and um ah now i don't know the the word in english is it brass instruments oh uh-huh yeah yeah, yeah. Like trumpets and and the trombones and all of that too yeah, yeah. yeah. it was a quintet they wanted to explore a little bit how they can move with their instruments and we had a little workshop this is already a few years ago and that was a lot of fun because they were first a little like oh we can do that but then they tried and they had so much fun and then they really eliminated some boundaries that they set for themselves and that was really wonderful to see how the instrument then became part of their body and became part of their physicality somehow it's just another thing of anything anyone can dance and move yeah this is another thing my improvisation teacher always told us that Everything is dance and everyone can dance. That's always the thing that she said. <laughs> yeah, it's so true though. Like I remember seeing a choreographic work. Oh, it's terrible. The name is escaping me right now. But she did a whole choreographic piece with like the trash trucks, like the trucks that pick up trash. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> but yeah. it's right. Like it, anything can dance and move. And it's, it's really great to see. And this kind of goes into my next question for you. And we've been in deep conversation about this. This is actually how we sort of met everybody in this conversation. And that's why I'm super excited to have it. But we've been in conversation about demystifying ballet for new audience members to come in and enjoy and, and understand and feel welcomed within the space. Um, could you describe and define for our listeners what demystifying ballet means to you? Yes, I mean... First, I probably have to say that when we talk about uh, the genre of classical ballet, then we have to recognize that it's sort of an elite form of dance. Um, meaning that because of the style, it, it is, ha doesn't have so much to do with who we are today. Because it's an, it's an, an older fashion aesthetics that comes from the romantic period. Um, which is one thing. The other thing is, of course, as a dancer myself, that the classical dance technique is so difficult that you will never be finished with it. And this is for me one sort of thought why we still have it, because it's so difficult to, to master. And it's the base for so many other things. But, but I think because of that sort of more, let's say, uh, let's call it old-fashioned style or, or, or aesthetic, maybe it doesn't speak to, to as many people that are not dance uh, enthusiasts or fans. So there is, of course, the, the problem of, of accessibility to it, which then we as creators, we as creators, we have the, the duty to make sure that it's accessible. And that, I think, can be done in, in, in several ways. But again, going back to the thought of communication, because we do want to communicate with what we do. And, you know, even if the dancer seems to be some sort of higher physical being, you know, that people look up to because of the, of the discipline or the, the, the body type or whatever, you know, 
some sort of something to aspire to. But at the same time, we are human beings and we just want to communicate as well. And I think that could probably be, there could be a stronger focus on that within maybe bigger organizations uh, so that it's less removed from who we are as people. Mm-hmm. And some companies also do that, you know, with workshops or open classes or, or other outreach projects. And I think that's like one thing how to kind of demystify this sort of world of, of uh, ballet and also probably our world, you know, with, with the movement of uh, democratization of the arts in general, I think, and I'm not a fan of, of stardom at all. So it's also this sort of taking away that this, this form of yeah, mystifying dancers as stars or some sort of higher beings. Yes, which, which was much more, you know, in the past, it was a bigger thing with, with dancers like Nureyev, Margot Fontaine and Barishnikov and all these people. And they're, you know, it's not saying that we shouldn't appreciate the quality and the excellency, but it's just sort of, you know, coming down to earth and thinking, okay, we're still humans and we still want to communicate together. <laughs> And I think this is so great to talk about because even, you know, I, I got to watch like my language in, in teaching and educating too, especially dance history. Marie Taglioni, friends who don't know, like, please go look up some videos. She's gorgeous and amazing. But I always, the first thing, and I, it's the, the quickest way for me to get everybody to realize how big ballet dancers were back then. I'm always like, she was the Beyonce of her time, y'all. Like th- this girl... <laughs> was really fantastic toward the world. Like she did such amazing things and then they get it. But in teaching it in that way, it's doing what you're talking about. It's putting, you know, dancers almost on this pedestal. And I'm I'm thinking about as well, like walking into a theater and like a normal proscenium theater and then the dancers are above you. So this idea of an audience sitting back and looking up and watching like, what does that do to the audience member? Like, do, where does that put them in placement? So it is really interesting when that happens. And then when we're talking about company members who do workshops or maybe teaching a class outside, you know, co- I'm thinking COVID right now, <laughs> but even right. going outside in an event space and doing a, a piece where you're, you're no longer separated by what we call the fourth wall anymore. Like there's this interactive, you all are in it. You can see us sweating. You can hear us breathing and really be involved and investigated within it. I think is really great and fun. And I hope that more people would start to do that with COVID, I would think. Um, Yeah, because of course, like also another uh, phenomenon of today is like that, that that participation is a big theme, participation in the arts and, and also then of course, by extension in dance. And there, I think again, going to classical ballet, that was of course a little bit of a difficult thing to do uh, within maybe if we speak about larger ballet companies. But I think, to be honest, that I believe that there should be some, some risk-taking uh, and different approaches. And I can't tell you exactly how to do that or what it should be, but I just feel like it's the time, and you mentioned COVID, the time for really make some changes and to reevaluate how what we do, how we do it, and why we do it, and for whom. Mm. So, yeah, I hope that many, many ballet companies, dance companies in general, arts organizations will do that or use this opportunity also to to look at things anew. 
Yeah. And it's important to understand too. And I hope that, and this is what I want to bring to the listeners too, is it takes time to do that. It takes time. It takes resources to do that as well. And it takes support from audience members. So I also want to give a shout out because I usually do it anyway, and I'll do it now of like really small companies within cities who are really trying to do this, this work, who unfortunately don't have the financial stability as larger companies who have more, you know, who have traveled a little bit more and, and their name is widely known. Here's a tax beer and ballet crew. Go ahead and look up a small dance company within your city. And, and how can you help? And how can you even a like on social media, I think really helps out a lot too. Just knowing that that supports there because emotionally, I think it's really draining on choreographers or creators as well of really trying to get the word out there and really try to relate to their audience. But it's tough when the audience can't be there or can't support, you know, it's tough to keep going. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, in this time, I still, you know, with our digital movement, but I still think, of course, and believe in this art form to be a life art form, like of being in a room, being with people in one room. And, and of course, the digital now especially helps us to continue uh, on one level or another. But of course, it's not saying that it, it, it will only be digital from now on. Mm-hmm. But that's a whole other discussion that maybe we shouldn't open. But but yeah. of course, as for me personally, as a choreographer, it it opened an opportunity to to show work in this time, which is wonderful. And also, many other colleagues and and dancers, choreographers have used you know the digital to to continue working. But there's one thing that I, I think is worth mentioning because I'm such an opponent of all the art being there for free, you know? Yeah. Because you said the struggle is real and people are losing their, you know, they're, they're struggling for existing. And, and that means that to, to create work of quality, as you said, you need the resources, but that also means that as, as dancers, choreographers, creators, we need to earn money. You know, it's as simple as that to, to, have the resources to create this kind of work. And mm-hmm. so I, I'm very skeptical with, with everything being for free because now, you know, an audience also gets used to it and they may be asked, why should I pay if I can see this on YouTube for free, you know? Mm-hmm. So that poses a big problem, I think, for, for the freelance market uh, and the freelance artists. Alrighty, friends, that is part one of my conversation with Andreas Heisa. And I can't wait until you get to listen to part two and you'll get it fairly soon. So I hope you all enjoy this lovely week. Go outside, enjoy the sun, enjoy the air and enjoy one of your favorite brewskis. Sit, breathe, relax. We're all here, folks. And I can't wait to keep chatting and keeping the conversation going. Bye for now. (laughs) 